On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Thanks to our very generous listeners, we've raised enough money to pay for a full year's worth of production and recording work. That's 104 episodes. Thank you all so very much. Today, we continue our six-part mini-series about the three kings of mid-century American pop, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley, with a rebroadcast of Nate's second 2020 interview with Crosby biographer Gary Giddens discussing his second of two books on Bing, Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940-1946. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we have the great pleasure of welcoming back Gary Giddens, the Bing Crosby biographer. And today we're going to focus on his second volume of Bing Crosby biography, Bing Crosby Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940 to 1946. Gary, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here. And so why did you choose to write a biography focused just on the war years? What went on in that six-year period that merited a full tome? Well, it was the really the central part of his career. I mean, it's when he achieved the most uh, triumphs uh, as a singer, as a, certainly as an actor, um, and uh but i think mostly because of his war work which nobody knew about crosby was uh as i've often said modest to a fault uh the entire uh war and his part in it gets about half a sentence in call me lucky his memoir he didn't feel he had a right to to trade on on what he did then and so most people did not know the extent of it they knew that he had raised a lot of money selling bonds and, and had entertained the troops but i don't think anybody really understood the the, the length and and the the amount of commitment he made to it and especially uh, hardly anybody knew in fact no one uh, when i first started researching there was nothing about the foxhole tour that he did in england and in a very dangerous part of france uh, not long after D-Day. Uh, but what really uh, motivated me to do the book just on the on the war years uh, was that after the first volume came out, Catherine Crosby, Bing's widow, invited me out to the house. And um, 
she liked the first volume and, and had not spoken to me before, uh, though I'd made many attempts. And now she was incredibly gracious, invited me out to the house and gave me access to basically everything. And uh, as I started going through Bing's uh, file cabinets and, and I found hundreds if not thousands of letters from families of uh, servicemen who had been killed and uh, and the fact that they wrote to Crosby to because the last letter they got was about a tour that he gave in France and how it cheered them up and they just wanted to thank him and they, I mean hundreds and hundreds of these extremely moving uh, I was moved to tears Catherine was in tears reading some of them um, and I, I kept going through it and then I found all of this material that uh, uh, about how compl complex this period was and how he really took control of his film career at this point and how fascinating the, the, the choices he made. Uh, and then uh, uh, there was a, uh, a cache of material found in a, in a storage room in, uh, in Nevada that uh, Mrs. Crosby said I could uh, have access to as soon as, as they were vetted. So I had a researcher in L.A., and she would go to a place where they were being vetted and send me hundreds of uh, photocopies uh, every few weeks. And uh, among the most amazing things that we found there was uh, this uh, letter, many, many pages, about his attempt to get out of his radio contract and the changes he wanted to make. And it just opened up a whole new way of looking at Bing. So um, I went to uh, my editor at that period at Little Brown, and I said, look, um, I want to make this entire volume about the 40s. And at first, uh, they weren't happy about that. But a couple of years later, when I had a first 300 or so pages, they read it and they liked it. And, um, and so we went ahead. And it's a, it's an incredibly powerful book. And as somebody, you know, as a Gen Xer, I'm not a Bing Crosby native. My first memories of Bing are as a, as a doddering old man on TV every once in a while, uh, joking back and forth with Bob Hope. And it was very hard, you know, and then I came to appreciate the road movies as a kid and had some friends who were into his music. And I, I sort of understood that, you know, he was comparable to Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley, that he was an enormous singing star and, and a movie star. But I didn't realize until I read your books, the length and the breadth of his career. I mean, this was a guy, it's as if the Beatles had stayed together through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. I mean, this is a guy who was the top singing star in the late 20s, who becomes a massive radio star and movie star in the 30s, saves the record industry in the 30s, as we discussed last time. And then goes on to be even bigger in his third decade of stardom. And not just big as a performing star. I mean, he's selling tons of records. He's got a top 10 radio show. I mean, and being heard by tens to 20 million, 30, 40, 50 million people a week, week in, week out. And starring in not just being Crosby vehicles, but moves up to A-list pictures and Academy Award winning pictures, but also takes on this cultural leadership role. And that was one of the things I found most inspiring about this book was you've done a great job of sort of reclaiming Bing Crosby, who's been, whose image has suffered greatly from, from I don't want to say slanders by his son. I mean, the things were mostly true that, that Gary Crosby said, and clearly the first four sons had very difficult lives and, and suffered greatly through 
largely the alcoholism of their mother, but also Bing's attempts to discipline and and his sort of remote Irish personality. But this was a man who deliberately embraced his Irish Catholic identity at a time when that was very controversial and served as a counterweight to people like Father Coughlin, the the vile demagogue, anti-Semite of the 30s and, you know, sort of the Rush Limbaugh of his day, but even worse, I mean, basically avowed pro-Nazi, America first type. And I hadn't realized really the maturity and the cultural impact that being had, and there's really been nothing comparable since. Well, that's true. Uh, Crosby uh, was way ahead of the curve on on all those issues of race, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, gay people. I mean, he, you know, I never forget Anthony Quinn saying to me that uh, Bing was the first guy, person I ever met in Hollywood who didn't treat me like a mex. And uh, I interviewed a number of uh, choreographers and uh, wig maker and people who were now openly gay or when I interviewed them in the 90s, uh, who were just astonished at how live and let live he was. And, and of course, you know, before he became a star, he gave part of his uh, salary, a, a handsome check to help the Scottsboro boys. He he uh, risked uh, being fired from the Woodbury show by I mean, singing with the Mills Brothers on the air. It was one thing to have them as a guest, but to be singing with them—that was a big—that was a big thing. Uh, when he produced his first film uh, in 1936, *Pennies from Heaven*, he insisted that his idol, Louis Armstrong, be given top billing, which was the first time for a black artist in a essentially white film. Uh, even though he's only in it for seven minutes, he's he's up on the, the top uh, credit card. Uh, 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 card, you know, the credit. Uh, it is a credit card, actually. It sounds strange now. But uh, uh, he he was really extraordinary in that respect. Um, he he was uh, he wasn't quite a libertarian. On the other hand, he was in favor of the legalization of pot. You know, he he had his own way of uh, thinking. Uh, one of his uh, secretary told me that. Uh, in 1960, uh, the, the the office, his brothers mostly, was very Republican, very conservative, and uh, she came to work wearing a, a JFK button because she was a big supporter of JFK. And uh, Bing's brother, I think it was uh, Larry, started screaming at her, we don't wear that in this office. And Crosby bounded out of his office and said, you don't tell somebody else uh you know, what to think or what to wear. And, uh, of course, he turned out to be a JFK supporter because he despised uh, Nixon. And uh, uh, he just, you know, he didn't... People always think of the thought of him as a sort of conservative, middle-of-the-road guy, but he really, he he was quite extraordinary in that way. He also came out against the war in Vietnam, and uh, it was because of that that Hoover opened up a, a file on him uh, looking for potential blackmail material, and all they could find is that he played poker with uh, a guy named Mo Dalitz, who in the 30s was a major gangster in the Midwest. <laughs> That's classic. And let's hear a little bit of Bing Crosby, uh, one of his first Irish songs. This is Did Your Mother Come From Ireland by the composer Jimmy Kennedy. Cause there's something in you Irish Will you tell me where you 
forget those Irish eyes. And before she left Killarney, did your mother kiss... And that was Bing Crosby singing Did Your Mother Come From Ireland, a song by Jimmy Kennedy, who wrote a number of other Irish songs, but also read Sales in the Sunset and, and was probably the greatest pop composer out of Ireland in this period. But that's part of Jack well, actually, Catch... Jim- Jimmy Kennedy is, is considered the most successful British uh, composer before McCartney and Lennon, a songwriter before McCartney and Lennon. Yeah, a, a ton of hits. And this was part of Jack Cap, who was the head of Decca Records and, and Bing's mentor for his recording career, the guy who guided uh, Bing's career and helped uh, select the material. This was part of Cap's strategy of making Bing an all-round entertainer. Bing started out as a red-hot jazz guy with the Paul Whiteman Orchestra and singing with Big Spiderbeck and others and was very much on the cutting edge of music. And Cap in the early 30s helped him transition into a all-round entertainer and sort of the uh, uh, American's pop singer that could handle any kind of material. And, and this Irish ethnic material, as I said, was part of a political stance that, that Bing took or complimented a political stance that he took. But he was also singing a, a wide variety of other musics, including country music, and had a big hit with Bob Bob Wills' new San Antonio Rose. Well, yeah, he, he, he did every kind of song. But there's one uh, correction I have to make, uh, which is that Cap, who who wanted him to sing a lot of 19th century songs and, you know, Stephen Foster, things that were in the public domain, songs from the early part of the century, uh, country songs, cowboy songs, French songs, Spanish songs. The one thing that he was uh, uh, wary of was the Irish songs. Crosby is the one who insisted on that. And Cap, in fact, didn't even release it right away. He he was worried about where to put it. He was thinking it should be a B-side on something. And when those records went through the roof, uh, it became part of uh, Crosby's persona. You have to remember that before uh, Crosby made this this stance against Father Coughlin and all the anti-Semitism that was rife in this country, the American Firsters and, and you know, Lindbergh and all of those people, he was known as an Anglican uh, star. I mean, he never played an Irish character in any of the two dozen movies he had already made. All of them had very obvious Anglican names. Um, his father uh, was, uh, you know, part of Church of England, uh, certainly not the Catholic in any way his mother was. And then all of a sudden, he made this transition from the the Anglican side uh, of his family to the Irish side and, and made himself, you know, in a sense, a minority figure. He, he was siding with the people who were being killed for who they were all over Europe. And uh, it was extraordinary the degree to which he made this uh, this turnaround. And after the Irish songs, of course, he starts playing Father O'Malley. He frequently plays Irish characters. He starts doing Irish accents. Uh, he had some of his biggest hits in the in the mid '40s with uh, you know things like McNamara's Band. And uh, from that point on to the rest of his career, people started to think of him as an Irish-American. But that did not exist in his persona before about 1940. And, that, and that's fascinating and really highlights what a mature individual Bing Crosby was and how he had come into his own as a force. And you mentioned his uh, business negotiations with uh, the radio sponsors and the networks and also his business negotiations with the movies. I really can't think – of 
very many comparable figures. I mean, somebody like Paul McCartney has come to take uh, a very strong role in, in his business handling and Irving Berlin, who was a little bit earlier and a contemporary of being definitely was was a shrewd businessman. But Crosby really had the reins of his career in a way that most celebrities don't. And to me, it just speaks of a maturity in his approach, which is odd because it was also a period when pop music wasn't self-conscious. And so there's no Bing didn't have a view of himself as an artiste. He just viewed himself as an entertainer who loved music and wanted to make good music, but he didn't put a lot of, it, it came so easy to him. He could go in the studio and learn the songs after one or two listens and deliver a, a knockout performance more often than not. He uh, basically played himself in movie after movie, even while stumbling upward into A-list and Oscar winning roles. He just embodied being in this very, casual, calm, steady as she goes way. And and it's really an incredible persona, like almost nobody else. And there's another factor though that I think might inhibit some people's enjoyment and appreciation of being these days. In there you refer to him as a living bridge to an older America of minstrelsy and variety. What did you mean by that? And how did the you referenced the ASCAP versus radio suit that was going on at the time. How did these different factors play in to being doing things like Stephen Foster songs and performing in blackface and Holiday Inn, and at the same time, you know, making a point of mentioning Paul, addressing Paul Robeson by name on his radio show, which totally outraged Southern racists. How do we reconcile being as progressive for his time? And yet also hearkening back to the past, the past that we now view with a great deal of distaste. Well, it was a different time. I mean, by the time Crosby came along, uh, minstrelsy was part of the American show business tradition. They weren't thinking of it in terms of we're making fun of black people. That would that may have been that was a part of it in the in the 1840s and 50s, and and certainly uh, during the Civil War. But after the war, a lot of the minstrel, most successful minstrel troops in the country were in fact uh, entirely black, even though they had to wear the same minstrel makeup, and they out. Uh, sold a lot of the white minstrel truths because they were considered more authentic, which I think is hilarious. But um, the by the time he came along, it was uh, it was a part of the th of what he had grown up with. He started, uh, you know, he loved show business when he was a kid, and he started out uh, pulling curtains and working backstage uh, at a theater in Spokane, where he first got to see Al Jolson perform twice, and that was life changing for him. So for him, it was part of a tribute to Jolson and to that era. But the thing is, uh, a lot of things contributed to the fact that Crosby. You have to remember that Crosby and Louis Armstrong, they're both the same in this. They were very close, and they were about the same in age. And, and it's this. When they were kids, when they were growing up, the records were brand new, and the phonograph had just been interrupted, introduced. And, in fact, uh, the first uh, one that the Crosby family had was uh, played Edison Cylinders, Uh which you know you could only play a few times because they were rather fragile and then the lateral disc was introduced but 
the thing about records was it was so exciting. It was so stimulating to be able to hear whatever John Philip Sousa in your living room, uh, even though today it's a level of fidelity that we sort of uh, find, uh, you know, difficult to listen to. It was thrilling in those days. And every record record uh, was a mystery until you played it. So there wasn't a bias. There wasn't a prejudice about what was cool and what wasn't, what was hip and what wasn't. And, you know, uh, a few decades later, your taste in recordings and music would define which you know social group you were in in high school, or uh, but th- but that didn't exist then. They just wanted to hear everything. So Crosby listened to Irish tenors. He loved John McCormick, had a huge influence on him. He loved Jolson, had a huge. You listen to the White Men records, you can hear the Jolson influence. Then he discovered jazz, and that really did it for him. And when he finally saw Louis Armstrong in person in 1926, that was another life-changing moment. So he was able to take all of these influences without bias, and he was able to to use them in uh, while completely remaining himself. I mean, he always sounds like Crosby. He, his influence speaks for itself because there's nobody else who quite sounded like him or phrased like him. Uh, he had a tremendous sense of rhythm. Uh, always knew where the first beat of the measure was, and so he was always swinging, even when the, the arrangement wasn't. I remember the late uh, great saxophonist uh, Jimmy Heath said to me that uh, he was—he said he was looking forward to the first volume of the Crosby of my Crosby biography. And I said, were you a Bing fan? He said, well, where do you think we got all the songs from? He was the only guy on radio who had time, with meaning the only white guy, because all of the major shows. Really, every network show was a white show. Uh, Louis Armstrong was the first to have a, a, a show, but that was only as a summer replacement. So, you know, we're talking about a period when racism was was just uh, pandemic uh, all over the country, and certainly on radio. But but uh, Crosby was the one guy who just had he always had jazz musicians in his band. He always had Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Art Tatum as guests. And so uh, he mainstreamed jazz for a lot of people who would not otherwise have been as uh, willing to listen to it. He also mainstreamed, even more remarkably, opera and classical music because he always had opera singers loved him and he routinely had opera singers on the air. And he would make it entertaining. He would have them sing one, you know, legitimate short opera, but then he would do a duet with them on some pop tune, which made the opera singers seem more human and relatable. And so he had an enormous impact in popularizing uh, different kinds of music beyond what was the 1930s and 40s version of the top 40. And he's also kind of a prescient performer in that he... I think you've got a quote from another writer saying that when Crosby expropriated material like country and Western or like rhythm and blues, that he sort of laid the groundwork for popular acceptance of these forms. And as part of a number of factors that lead to the ascension of figures like Bob Wills and like Louis Jordan, who he duetted with throughout this period. And and that's another fascinating thing is not only is he doing, you know, Irish songs and Hawaiian songs and country songs, but in this period, he's still keeping up his reputation as a swinging singer, particularly in duets with the Andrews sisters and with Louis Jordan, who is 
absolutely on the cutting edge in this period. I mean, this is the father of rhythm and blues, the guy who takes swing, you know, swing jazz sort of bifurcates in this period. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie take it off into bebop and Louis Jordan takes it, takes swing and simplifies it and makes it more rhythmic and more um, pop and entertaining. And Bing does these duets with Louis Jordan. Well, uh, that's right. And he also, not in addition to doing the recording the duets, which was a, which was what got uh, Cap to raise uh, Louis Jordan from the so-called race label on Decca to the expensive uh, black label Deccas, where Crosby and the Andrew Sisters and the Mills Brothers and more popular acts were. Uh, but he also recorded uh, uh, Jordan's songs. He, you know, he did. The, he and the Andrew Sisters did "Is You Is You." or Is You Ain't My Baby, which was an enormous hit. And uh, so he popularized that. At country music, the same thing. Uh, Roy Rogers, uh, who then was known as the king of the cowboys, uh, said to me before Bing, everybody thought uh, if you were going to sing cowboy songs, you had to sound like Gabby Hayes. And Bing showed everybody that you could be a smooth voice singer. And Gene Autry came out of Bing, Roy Rogers, Jimmy Wakely, later Eddie Arnold. Um, so he had an enormous influence, even though he never was at the Grand Old Opera, Opry, or never considered part of country music. He had a tremendous influence there. And, and he was the first white uh, singer who was routinely included on black jukeboxes in Harlem, which uh, many, many people uh, told me about. Uh, that was He was the one uh, white cat whose stuff was always on the, on the uptown jukeboxes. That's awesome. And I want to play a song here that I first became aware of through reading your book. It, this was something you recorded around the same time as you recorded New San Antonio Rose. This is Floyd Tillman's It Makes No Difference Now by Bing Crosby. Makes no difference now what kind of life fate hands me. I'll get along without you now, that's plain to see. I don't care what happens next, for I'll get by somehow. I don't worry, cause it makes no difference now. And that was Bing Crosby is saying it makes no difference now, which uh, I really had no, I mean, I knew that he had done New San Antonio Rose and I knew he had done a lot of cowboy songs, but I didn't realize he was covering the Carter family and Riley Puckett and Floyd Tillman and just the the deeper I dig into Bing Crosby, the more treasures I find. So I want to thank you for uh, your curation of the collection because you know it's a, it's a big deep puddle and and you've really picked out some gems in there. But I want well, to that's switch. one of my favorite uh, of his records. Um, I love his phrasing on that. I love the way it swings. Ray Charles uh, also did a great version of that, and uh, you can tell that he he knew the Crosby version from the, his arrangement. Um, but yeah, he he had a he he had a good ear, and sometimes Cap would give him novelties that weren't very good. But if you if you compare what he recorded at Decca with what he did on the weekly radio show, and we have you know most of the shows have survived. After Kraft, Kraft, uh, it's very mixed bag. But we also have the lists of what he sang, so we know what he did on every single show. And on the radio show, he chose the songs, and the level of the songs is just extremely and consistently high. He hardly ever sings junk on the radio. On recordings, occasionally he would, but never on the radio. And we alluded to it a couple times, but I want to dive into this. There was a 
dispute between ASCAP, which is the publishing organization that represented most of the songwriters of the Great American Songbook, you know, Irving Berlin, the well, Gershwins. This is very important, yeah. Um, the ASCAP uh, people who basically had a monopoly on American popular music, uh, they got very greedy and they raised their licensing fees, uh, I think something by four hundred percent something ridiculous and uh the radios just uh, uh protested and and basically um they were forbidden from playing ascap ascap was so confident of its power that they figured you know they'll run out of material in a week and they'll come back begging to pay their licensing fee well the radio the people put their own uh music publishing company together called broadcasting music incorporated bmi which still exists now one of the two most important uh, uh, outlets for publishing music, ASCAP, still huge, and BMI. Well, when BMI came along during the strike, it was an opportunity for a lot of songwriters who had been sort of turned down by ASCAP because they were considered, uh, you know, regional. They weren't considered to be in the George Gershwin, Irving, Berlin, Cole Porter class, which, uh, but they were also, there was also a bias against them because they, these were people who wrote Southern songs, country songs, blues songs, and they had been out, uh, exiled or outlawed from, uh, from ASCAP. So they all came to BMI and suddenly BMI was huge because when rock and roll came along, that was the place where everybody went. And, uh, so it really, it didn't help ASCAP's case at all. And the other thing that happened then was everybody started looking for public domain songs that they wouldn't have to pay royalties on that also weren't protected by ASCAP. So suddenly there was a rediscovery of a lot of songs that had been written during, in the 19th century. Carrie Jacobs Bond, of course, Stephen Forster, who became huge. I mean, Stephen Forster was not as big in his brief lifetime as he was in the 1940s during the strike, uh, when everybody was recording his songs. Louis Armstrong, the Mills Brothers, Crosby, of course. Uh, he was. There were what half a dozen movies about Stephen Forster made. I mean, anything to get a. Uh, remember the Mighty Joe Young? The theme song is "Beautiful Dreamer." Runs through the whole movie because they didn't have to pay for that Stephen Foster song. So uh, uh, it, it just it just mixed everything up. And instead of just hearing the top of the line ASCAP songs, you were beginning to discover something about American uh, traditional music, evergreens from the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century. And at the same time, you were beginning to hear country, blues, Hawaiian, all Spanish, Latin uh, flavored, all kinds of songs. Uh, a lot of uh, Latin classics were now for the first time translated into English. Crosby did a great many of those. So uh, it just opened up the whole field of what popular music was. That was and not the intention of ASCAP, <laughs> but that's what happened. <laughs> not at all. And a couple years later, and so that was a strike where ASCAP wouldn't let their songs be performed on the radio. But a couple years later, there's a different strike, which is the American Federation of Musicians put on a strike that did not allow artists to record or musicians, instrumental musicians to record, singers could record the whole time. And you had some performers who did a lot of acapella songs in this period. But how did Bing and Cap deal with the uh, AFM strike? 
Well, uh, at the same time that we were uh, fighting uh, demagogues and dictators in uh, Europe, uh, the AFI was taken over by a demagogue named Petrillo, uh, sort of a reverberant name in uh history of American popular music. He took over the union and he wanted uh he wanted a strike of of musicians and he he went about it uh, not never clearing exactly what he wanted in return to avoid is he just he liked having his name on the new front page of the newspapers. He liked having power, he liked telling people what to do. So he started this strike that went on for two years and this was only the first of three the second and third strike also in the mid 40s uh only lasted a few months each but the first one was two years that's why we have uh we don't have the evolution of bebop on recordings i mean this is when charlie parker and dizzy came up and those two years when they were really defining their art uh nobody could make recordings um musicians uh uh, Petrillo at one point said that uh, he would allow recordings to be made for the servicemen, the VDIS, but it was pointed out to him that that was illegal. You can't decide who can buy your records and who can't. So everybody thought he was completely nuts and he wouldn't go along with it, but he did. And uh, this uh, forced uh, the record companies uh, basically out of business for a couple of years uh, until uh, Cap was the first one to come up with the idea. Uh, Crosby, actually, he had just made a record called Dixie. And uh, Johnny Burke and uh, Jimmy Van Heusen had written a song for it called Sunday, Monday, or Always. And and, and everybody knew it was going to be a big hit. And he couldn't put out a record. So uh, Crosby did a uh, acapella version, which Sinatra covered in the same acapella arrangement. And both of those records were huge sellers. Crosby's was a million seller. And uh, uh, this sort of... Uh, well, what he did was very smart. He, uh, Bing, when he started out in his career, he used to play drums. So he went to the union and, and signed up as a uh, as a drummer. And uh, Petrillo said, uh, okay, you can make a recording now that you're a member of the union, but you can't play drums on it, which he had no intention <laughs> of doing at all. So he made an acapella, uh, these acapella records, uh, which gave a certain amount of power to uh, Decca. And uh, then he, Jack Cap was in a very different situation than the other record companies. The other record companies all had, you know, RCA and Columbia, the two main ones, had symphony orchestras under contract. Uh, a, a lot of their output was classical music. They could reissue all of that. They they had uh, tons of recordings they could reissue for years to come. But Decca had only been around since the, the late 1930s. So, uh uh, he had far less to reissue, and he had to keep in business. So he made a special, a separate deal. He agreed to pay a higher royalty to the musicians' union. And when when he made that deal, the other record company said, we will never do that, but they now had no choice because Decca was back in business. He was basically the only guy who was making a lot of money selling records. So RCA folded and Columbia folded, and they all made deals, but better deals than they would have otherwise made because – Cap had set a precedent, and uh, uh, during that period, again, it was you know when you combine that with the ASCAP strike, you really have a a uh, have to figure out different ways to find music you can record, and the way to use uh, way you can use uh, acapella instead of uh, the ordinary ordinary you know 
orchestral arrangement. When when Bing finally, after Decca signed its deal, uh, he announced that Bing was coming back with the Andrews Sisters, which was a big deal then because he had only made one recording with them back in the 30s, and this was the beginning of their new relationship. And the press was out in droves to to watch this session recorded in L.A., and it was a big deal because again, a singer was in the studio with musicians with a with a band of eight or ten musicians accompanying them and that sort of that's what really began the end of the strike and in the book you describe that Bing basically had three pillars to his career in this period he stopped doing live concerts in the early 30s so he had records which we talked about and he had radio which we talked about and movies were really the prestige media at the time and you describe a process by which Bing who had starred in a number of profitable and successful movies in the 30s, but they were seen as B pictures, as being Crosby vehicles. In the 40s, he ascends to an A-list actor. What were the movies that helped him make that transition? Well, the first thing that happened that was really um, of a, a major consequence, he, he made a couple of pictures in 1938 and 39 that did not do very well. Um, Singing Sinners, that did well. It's unfortunate that people don't know that today because it's an extraordinary film. But then he did a, a, bi a biopic about uh, uh, Gus Edwards and the school days kids, and that one went, didn't do well. So his career was at a strange place because he was in his, uh, you know, he was in his middle, late 30s. Um, he couldn't be a 20-something crooner forever. What, do you, what does a performer like that do? He wasn't going to play uh, cowboys. He wasn't going to play... You know, Dick, uh, detectives like Dick Powell did when he stopped being a, a musical star. Um, so he makes this film with Bob Hope, The Road to Singapore, which was a one-off. And uh, it was an enormous hit. Nobody anticipated it. It was the top-grossing movie of 1940. So that began that series, and suddenly everybody realized, I mean, Bing always was famous for his wit and his ability to ad-lib, and it was part of his persona on the radio, and he could be very funny in some of the movies. Uh, Here is my heart. He's, he's a brilliant farceur in that film, and, uh, and also in We're Not Dressing and others, going all the way back to the big broadcast. But here he's really playing one-on-one -on -one with a famous comedian, Bob Hope, who wasn't known in the movies, but was well-known in New York for his Broadway and, and radio work. And uh, not only does he hold his own, own, but he occasionally just steals the scenes right from under Hope. So everybody started to look at him in a different way, but he wasn't going to just play comedies either. So uh, he begins to choose very carefully the kinds of parts he does. He's very careful about the scores. Uh, and the the film that really changed, the, I guess the the first big mega hit is uh, the the film that introduced uh, White Christmas Holiday Inn. Uh, he plays opposite Fred Astaire. Uh, Fred Astaire, to his uh, somewhat chagrin, uh, found this to be the top-grossing movie in his career, uh, exceeded only by the second movie he made with Crosby several years later. These re these movies made a lot more money, believe it or not, than the the records the films uh, Fred did with Ginger Rogers. And uh, this was a, a again it was an Irving Berlin score, White Christmas, which was unknown until the film came out in that summer of uh, 1942. Uh, it was the first uh, Hollywood film that actually acknowledged the war and used uh, some stock footage to to show that we were now in it after Pearl Harbor. 
and uh, it was a, a, a monumental hit. Ironically, and I go into this in some detail in the book, if you look at the original uh, film reviews, nobody singled out, except for one writer in New York named Kay Yardeller. I always give her credit for this. She was the only one who said, White Christmas is going to be a huge hit. You're going to be hearing it long before Christmas. The only one. Everybody else thought that the big hit was going to be Abraham, the blackface number, uh, which they called a swing spiritual, which it isn't a spiritual and it isn't swinging. But Bing, uh, it, it just was hugely popular. When the movie first opened, uh, audiences would applaud uh, after Abraham, and nobody minded the, the blackface. I mean, even... Uh, black columnists who were really offended by the fact that uh, Berlin used the word darky in the lyric uh, and uh, there was a big article in Time magazine and Berlin to his credit said if I had known it was offensive I would never have used it and I've ordered my publisher to take out uh, my uh, the sheet music to uh, uh, change the, the word darky to uh, people I think or something like that uh, and and it was never used again, but it was, of course, too late for the film. It's already in the film. But nobody complained about the blackface because many famous black comedians in that period were also performing in blackface. I mean, if you look at the movie Stormy Weather, which is an all-black cast, you see some of them actually in the dressing room is putting on the burnt cork. So that was not considered an issue then. And in fact, uh, when uh, 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 the head of the NAACP and uh, Wendell Wilkie, uh, who had run against FDR, uh, came to Hollywood to demand uh, better roles uh, uh, for black uh, artists before the camera, but also behind the cameras, writers, directors, et cetera, et cetera, that wouldn't come for a long, long time, and it still hasn't completely come. Um, but when when uh, they were complaining about the language and the, 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 the stereotypes of blacks always playing maids and porters, uh, the question of blackface was was raised, and Willard White, the head of the NAACP, said, well, if white folks want to pre- pretend that they're black, you know, Go for it. I mean, that that just wasn't something that was particularly bothersome then. And the weird thing to me watching that movie recently was it was clearly well-intentioned. I mean, it's it's a tribute to Abraham Lincoln, and it's an attempt to celebrate Lincoln freeing the slaves. And right. it's attempting to be a pro-African-American statement, but because of the blackface, and particularly the female lead is in a particularly ridiculous outfit with picking any hair and the whole bit – and, you know, it's the kind of thing where I'm showing my daughter, who's seven years old, who loves Judy Garland musicals, who's getting to enjoy being. And, you know, I had forgotten that scene was coming up and you have to stop and explain the whole thing. And, and, and It's interesting that the blackface uh, in that film and in most 1940s films, they always use it as some plot issue, you know. Why is she wearing blackface so that Fred Astaire won't recognize her? There's always some dumb plot justification written into the script when all they really want to do because Irving Berlin loved minstrelsy he wrote a lot of minstrel songs and uh, they just want to do a blackface number because audiences loved it as I point out in the in the book uh, there were some 60 feature films and short subjects many of those short subjects made for children by the three stooges and 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 uh, you know 10 one and two reeler comedy things like that uh, that used blackface. It was a 
It was revived in the 1940s because it was said to represent some kind of continuity with a, a and, and nostalgia for you know white people who grew up with it and remembered it, and so everybody did it. Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, John Wayne does blackface in a film. I mean, it's hard to think of a major performer in and out of music who didn't somehow got caught up with it in that period. And then when the war is over, 1946, the third top-grossing movie of the year is The Jolson Story, which half of which is in blackface. And then in 1949, the number one grossing movie in the country is Jolson Sings Again. So you can see that this country had an attachment to blackface that went way, way beyond uh what what seemed uh, just an act of nostalgia uh, during the war. And it, was, it really wasn't until the early 50s that everybody just said, wait a second, this is appalling, we have to stop this. And interestingly, the, the one the, the film that really sort of put a, you know, full stop to it was Bing's uh, film uh, directed by Michael Curtiz, again with an Irving Berlin score called White Christmas, uh, which is today Crosby's biggest grossing film. It's a, a Christmas staple. But there's a big minstrel scene at the film, and it's very definitely done in whiteface. It's, 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 it's very uh, consistent with the, the minstrel practices. The jokes are out of minstrelsy, the dancing. Everything is very uh, authentically minstrel, but there's no blackface. And guess what? Obviously, you can do this without – it doesn't lose anything because they're not made up to look ridiculous. Yeah, the the whole show, Hee Haw, in the 70s is essentially recycling minstrel bits, and, uh, and I didn't realize this until recently learning more about minstrelsy. So the fundamental comedy variety, American comedy variety, fundamentally comes out of minstrelsy. It's, it's very difficult to extricate American music from uh, this tradition that we now find so problematic. But I want to switch to – Another pair of songwriters that wrote most of Bing's material, he worked with Irving Berlin in three pictures, and obviously White Christmas is this incredible mega hit. I mean it charts literally every year from 1942 to 1962 with one exception. I mean this is by far the most successful record of all time, so I want to be sure listeners understand the magnitude of the success of that thing. But most of the time in Bing's movies, he had his own personal songwriting team of uh, of uh, Burke and Van Usen, and, and they wrote the songs for uh, The Road Pictures and Going My Way. Talk a little bit about that partnership and how that worked. Well, it really begins with Johnny Burke, uh, who was a very close friend of Crosby's in the 30s. He, Johnny Burke initially came to Crosby uh, with a different uh, partner. Um, he was uh, Jimmy Monaco, who was a, a bit older man who had written songs for Jolson and had written quite a number of hits over the years. And they wrote uh, Bing's first independent feature, uh, which was Pennies from Heaven. So Johnny Burke uh, and, and Monaco wrote uh, Pennies from Heaven itself, and it's actually a wonderful score. It's a terrific, uh, very underrated movie. That's the one Armstrong uh, introduced the skeleton in the closet in. And... Uh, uh, then he he wanted to work with a younger uh, composer, Burke, somebody his own generation and somebody who he thought could move him ahead. And he heard about uh, Van Heusen in New York, who was basically a song plugger, couldn't get arrested. And they wrote a couple of songs together to basically show Bing what they could do. 
And uh, there were a lot of reasons why it was difficult, because there were all kinds of contracts, and everybody loved Jimmy Monaco personally, including Bing. Um, but when he heard uh, the kind of thing that they were turning uh, out, um, he eventually uh, uh, was very happy to facilitate the change, and Burke uh, loved uh, Burke and Van Dusen loved each other, and they just had an amazing uh, career for, you know, uh, a decade, more than a decade. And the songs that they wrote, uh, "Swinging on a Star," "Moonlight Becomes You," just you know, hit after hit after hit. Not just for Crosby, but also Sinatra. Some of Sinatra's biggest hits, like "Imagination," uh, also. Uh, and and uh, a lot of the songs they came they wrote just became standards, and uh, actually I'd say they were probably the leading new songwriting team of of the war and of the 1940s. And then uh, Burke uh, uh, had some trouble with pills and alcohol, and he became unreliable, and he moved to New York to write for the Broadway stage, and Van Heusen, uh continued the partnership this time with Sammy Kahn. And now they became, uh, Bing had pretty much, uh, you know, stopped his full-scale movie career, although he still used them, uh, Con and Van Heusen, but basically they then became Sinatra's songwriters. Interestingly, when Burke and Van Heusen uh, started to team up, Sinatra, uh, you know, was dying to have them, but Sinatra was... You know, he was he was Tommy Dorsey's singer. He was a nobody in terms of power in the industry, and uh, Crosby was, you know, Paramount Pictures. I mean, there was no <laughs> there was no choice between the two of them. So Van Dusen moved out to California, and for the next uh, dozen years, uh, although he occasionally used uh, Berlin, as we said, or Johnny Mercer did uh, one of his films, Hoagie Carmichael, uh, but most of them, and certainly all the road pictures, were Burke and Van Dusen. And let's hear a little bit. I want to play um, Ain't Got a Dime to My Name from The Road to Morocco. Ain't got a dime to my name. What a terrible shame. Ho, hum. Ho, ho, hum. Just found a hole in my shoe when my stocking shows through. And that was Ain't Got a Dime to My Name, written by Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Eusen. Or did I get that backwards? I always get the Jimmy and Johnny uh, mixed up. But that was uh, Ain't Got a Dime to My Name by Bing Crosby from The Road to Morocco. And pretty much I've hit all the points I wanted to hit. Do you have any, any concluding thoughts about Crosby? Or is there a third volume in the works? Are you going to you go into the, the 50s and the 60s, into the, his death in 1977? Yeah, I hope to. Um, it's on. It's definitely a, my plan. Um, I have a couple of other books I have to do first. Uh, contracts that uh, long overdue. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I have all the research already, so it's just a matter of uh, uh, finding the time to put it all together. And really looking forward to that. And thanks so much for coming on the show and, and telling us about Bing Crosby. He was just a mammoth figure in American music. Who's kind of lost today? You're, I watched your American Masters uh, on PBS that you did recently. Do you feel like you've had any success in in reigniting interest and respect for Crosby's accomplishments as a musician? Well, I hope so. I spent twenty five <laughs> years doing the, these two volumes. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't really. 
we have a cultural amnesia in this country that is uh, just impossible to fight off. I mean, the, you know, the infrastructure for the music business is based on what you can sell, and that's always somebody who's alive that you can manage and produce. And so we don't uh, have a way of, uh, we don't readily recycle our history, and most people don't know performers from before, the way they no longer know movies from before. Um, and that's really unfortunate, but we write books, and we try to call people's attention, and uh, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people discover it, and they're very happy to say, well, I didn't even know about this guy, and now I can't stop listening to him. So that's always very gratifying uh, for a biographer and a historian, and uh, that's really all you can do. And and much appreciated. Our guest is Gary Giddens, and the book is Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940 to 1946. And uh, I hope we can have you back on the show when you publish your next book. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And next Thursday, we'll rebroadcast the first of Nate's two 2021 interviews with Frank Sinatra biographer James Kaplan discussing Sinatra's early years, his rise to superstardom, and his dizzying fall from grace in the late 1940s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.